You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is some of my best friends are Kabbalists, and some of my best friends, Rav Nossin Nataglik in Ashkelon, uh, has been through a very grueling and terrible time. Uh, this Gaza war, whatever it's called, I'm not sure exactly what the, the name, the, what do they call it again, Nelson? It has a, has a certain name. Uh, Shomreya Chaimers. Yes. Sure. By the way, that's, that's because, that's because of Yom Yerushalayim. You know, these, uh, the names that they give to these operations are usually, are usually seasonal and maybe a little bit liturgical. Okay. Um, but, but you're right. Shomer Chomas, of course, is, 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 is a reference to the idea. The Turekarta! Yes. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Yes. Because <laughs> they were the ones who were making sure that the Chomas Mishalayim are impenetrable. And I know Nelson, the, the, the demand any sort of normal Yishabadas, uh, when you are waking up consistently to rocket fire, when you are, um, huddled in a, in a, a tight space like your 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 children's apartment. Um, it's clear that we can't just go back to our, uh, our our Kabbalistic musings. But I think that you represent for many of our listeners, who of course are all over the globe, a chance to know what it's like. What was it like, really, of what you guys went through? And I know the ceasefire hopefully will hold. Can you give us a little bit of some vignettes of what? And again, obviously, there was. We know that there was going to be trepidation and fear, but I know that. Can you use your illustrative talents to perhaps bring home some of what a family in Ashkelon had to live through over the last uh, of those eleven days? Well, I guess the first thing that that comes to mind is that it was less terrifying than you would imagine. Okay, and for some reason, I mean, I can I can compare two terrifying events that happened in my life. Okay, one of them, you know, one of them was being here for for Shomer Hamot and Tzuketan and and uh, and um, um, what did they call it? They call it Oferet Yitzuka, which, by the way, is a is a reference to dreidel because that one happened during Hanukkah, I think. Um, you know, they they melt lead to make little dreidels, so they had a. Uh, anyway, whatever I told you, these these names are all chosen for seasonal. You know, I uh, always you know, da- I always thought Oferisitsuka was sort of like we're going to rain down that metal upon you. That's what I thought it meant. Nah, I think it was it was, it was uh, you know, dreidels made out of poured lead. They used to make them out of poured lead. I mean, you, you, our ancestors probably remember that. You know, lead dreidels, very good, very good for your health. You know, uh, playing with lead dreidels on Hanukkah. Yeah. Um, where was I? So yeah, I was, I was, so I was here for all of the, all of the um, events of that kind, including even the first Gulf War when there was, when there was, uh, you know, fear of chemical weapons and and things. And that was that really was kind of scary and hairy until we figured out that they weren't shooting at Ashkelon Bichlal and and uh that they weren't shooting um chemical weapons which came came kind of clear but that was okay so the, that first one was really scary um for for a number of reasons after that 
you know, you just end up in a situation where it doesn't help you to be scared. It's not, it's not helpful in any way. Um, and the thing that you have to do is you have to do what you need to do in order to be safe. And, and the, the more tranquil you are about it, the better off everybody is. I mean, nobody needs somebody falling apart with hysteria. It's bad for the kids. It's bad for the grownups. And, and uh, so I have either developed out of necessity or, or out of temperament a, a very stoic attitude towards these things. Okay, so actually I felt very little fear of any kind. Mostly what you feel, I think, or what I feel is annoyance. It is terribly, terribly annoying. We don't have a safe room in our, in our apartments, so whenever the sirens go off, we have to jump out of bed and run out to the stairwell. Um, and that's the safest place in the, in the building, and that's how we do it. This particular time was specifically difficult for both of us. Um, first of all, my wife is not like me, so, you know, Becky does get pretty freaked about pretty freaked out about these things and she was she was um definitely losing her her composure um i was having problems because i have have some lower back issues and jumping out of bed you know you know giving yourself 10 seconds to get out the front door is is not good for my bad back so that's what caused us to move over to uh my son's house where they do have a safe room and everybody was sleeping in the safe room and we were able to sleep all night long even even if even if a rocket went off so so it's kind of like a you know transgenerational pajama party really you know <laughs> to um you know, to pre-adolescent how... children, my my son and my daughter-in-law, and 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 me and Becky, all Becky sleeping actually, in one little room. Becky actually mm-hmm. sent me a uh, a video. Uh, she wasn't able to sleep as soundly as you, so she wanted me to see uh, the the tableau of all of you mm-hmm. there uh, together. But did it did it did it cause you to feel? I know you have a very close relationship with your family who lives there with you. Did you feel even closer and more connected? The fact that you were there in, in dire circumstances and it really made much more concrete to you what it means to, to have a family. It isn't just a, a biological imperative to continue the bloodline. But here's an example of where you already in your sixties are now bonding with your kids, your kids in a way are, are providing you safe haven and, 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 and you have a natural ability to just be with them, just like an old Eskimo family together. Like here we are, yeah. you know, except you're, except they're not going to put the old people out on the ice floe <laughs> <laughs> to die. But there's a certain, wasn't there like a certain a sense of, you said a pajama party, but maybe it was even deeper than that. Is it possible? Like a, a real yeah. sense of, of love and, 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 and what does it mean to, to, to be a family? Yeah. Yeah. And we have, um, you know, we do have a very loving family. We raised our kids with a lot of that. Um, and, you know, it was, it was natural for them to accept us into their home. And we were there for like, I don't know, a week and a half, which is, I mean, this is not a really big apartment that they have. And, uh, and it's, it's six people sleeping in one, in one bedroom, um, snores and, other uh, nocturnal um, <laughs> phenomenon, <laughs> you know. So, but it was it was wonderful to be so warmly welcomed, and our kids made it seem to us as if, you know, like don't even bother thanking us. It's as natural as as you know 
rain in the winter time. And um, did you find you, you yourself? Know, I know that. And we... the, the kids were the kids were great. My my kids were great. I mean, I'm talking about the grandchildren. The grandchildren were accepting. They opened up their rooms and they opened up their hearts. And yeah, Becky and I both felt very, 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 very loved by our children. And um, you know, I I I know during the um, whether it was the War of Independence or the '67 War. Um, I think it was the War of Independence, or Shlomo Zalman um, was responding to people who were asking him about checking, about listening to the news and hearing what was going on. And he understood that you couldn't just live in a bubble. But what he this, what he said was perhaps once a day. Um, did you find yourself like listening to the Chadashot every hour to hear what was going on, or did you? Did you, you know, was that something crucial? Oh, we have to hear what's going on. We have to listen to what's been happening. Uh, did you find yourself? That's a, generally, generally I do, although that, that connects to one of a, probably the less, um, less happy and healthy aspects of my, of my personality. Okay. Um, and I, I believe, I believe in davening in general, um, and I believe in my own davening, and I, I believe in the kind of davening that happens when you when you talk to other baruch And I'm, you know, very much a Breslover chassid in that regard. Um, and so I pray about these things when something happens to Am Yisrael, to Eretz Yisrael, something happens on the on the, you know, on the big on the big screen. Okay, I I try to do my bit. I'm not a you know warrior or a fighter. Um, but I'm a davener, you know. So actually, in some in some instances, my my Torah learning is actually strengthened by that. Um, and I did spend a fairly unusual amount of time, you know, um, let's see, doing long shmaines rays, you know, and and trying to you know trying to wrestle with the Kaddish Baruch Hu and convince him that. Uh, you know that it, it's time to lift the the curtain from reality, and and you know this is something I think I can legitimately tell a Kadosh Baruch Listen, don't do it for us, please do it for you. I mean, really, you know, I mean, do you you want you want these people who who come to you know who come to your come to your mountain, come to your home? You really want these people to you know claim that their religion is the ultimate truth, that their prophet is the end of all prophets, that he took a night journey from Harabayas up to Shemayim and 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 all of the all of the uh, tzaddikim over there, including Moshe Rabbeinu and Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov, they all empowered him uh, to to pray at, in front of Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Really, I mean that's that's you want you want people believing that. Yeah, okay. You know, they, I think that, so. Uh, this is so. 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 This is this is my trip. But anyway, I'll call. I'll call upon him. You know, I'm kind of wrapped up. I was kind of wrapped up in the news based upon my experience with previous uh, operations. This one, after about five days, the Hamas was were not firing as often or as consistent consistently. Um, they had many more missiles to fire. Okay, so they were able to fire off more missiles in a shot. But I, you know, they were like in previous in previous operations, they were just shooting off, you know, whenever they felt like it. And okay, so we're we're jumping out of bed and running to the stairwell all the time, pretty much in the course of the day. This time, after about five days, it didn't feel like previous. You know, we we were able to sleep through the night without hearing a single 
thing. And most of the time we were able to get through most of the day. So you had like one or two or three barrages in the course of a day. Now that's just Ashkelon, of course, that's not, you know, I, I can't say, I can't speak for what's happening in Beersheba or, or any place else, but you know, my impression is that this time it is different for them. This time it was different. Um, and, um, so look, you know, Be'ezer Hashem, we should, should be Matzliach. You know, we, you, you um, mentioned before, Nate, the, um, uh, the Arab presence, the Muslim presence on Harabayas. Uh, there are, there is references in the Zohar to the power of Yishmo on the Makomas Kedoshim. Um, yes. the Zohar, and this is one of the proofs, by the way, skeptics of the Zohar have, uh, that the Zohar is a work that was written um, you know, in the 13th and 14th century, because it sort of describes, you know, it, it, what the, the what we know was the Muslim control of Eretz Yisrael. Yeah, so, and, I, and, and the Zohar seems to talk about the schuyot that Yishmol has, that there are certain, again, we probably, when things calm down and, and from both of our ends, Perhaps that would be a wonderful place to explore in terms of the uh, the reason why God has allowed, not just in the last century, for centuries, God has allowed the Muslims to control Makomas Kedoshim and to put down uh, you know, the, the, the B'nai Yisrael. There's, there seems to be something, you know, even the Ramban talks about, uh, you know, the, the punishment that's being extracted from us from the way Hagar uh, treated uh, was treated by Sari Menu, right? So there is a right. uh, th- there are sources in, in from Kabbalistic writers about the power that Yishmol still wields, correct? Yes, and incidentally, I do not actually have any complaints about Muslims davening on on um, Harabais or whatever they want to think about what happened on Harabais. The problem, the problem is one of replacement theology, right? And this is this is a um, like a you know favorite pet argument of mine. It is the fact that the religions that came after us, let's say Christianity and Islam, uh, feel the need to delegitimize us and and deprive us of things that they admit are fundamentally ours. Harabais is fundamentally ours. It was a Jewish place. It was Am Yisrael's place. We were there, you know. And if you and in order to in order to uh, substantiate their own religion, they have to claim this as being their own, which is precisely which is precisely what they do. And as they, they there is a, a a certain passage in the Quran about the night journey, which may or may not have been to Yerushalayim, but they interpret it as having been to Yerushalayim because they say Al Aqsa is the farthest most um, mosque from from Mecca. Let's say so they they consider Al Aqsa that does occur in the Quran as being a reference to Harabais, and from there Muhammad went up to Shemaim, and and then you can tell from what happened up there in Shemaim. You know, Aliba de Shitasam, okay, that, that therefore Islam is the true ultimate monotheistic religion, and that all the other religions have to basically be subservient to it if they wish to exist at all. And, you know, there's no reason to be so 
you know, there's there's no there's no reason for this Saros Ayun. You know, why do we why do you have to deprive us of our own identity and our own history? You know, you have your Mecca, you have your places. And if you want to come here and daven, so fine. You know, if if, if a Kodesh Baruch Hu isn't going to shoot a lightning bolt at your rear ends, then that's his business. I don't, you know, I don't have to be involved. But to say that a Jew can't come up on Harabais, that a Jew can't pray on Harabais, I mean, okay, so maybe, okay, so so maybe we really shouldn't be doing that at all, according to the halacha, depending on who your basic is. But that's not the Muslim's call. Muslims don't have any right to to make that call. So accept the fact that we're here, accept the fact that we're for real, accept the fact that we are a legitimate religion. You know, you don't have to dance on Judaism's grave in order to make your religion true. It's not a zero-sum game here, you know. And I mean, that's really a point that, you know, if, if you if you read it with a with a subtle attitude, you know, you see that that's the point that Rabbi Yehuda Halevi makes in the first chapter of the of the Kuzari. And that's why that's why basically Judaism wins the argument because because it doesn't have the duplicious attitude of of trying to present itself as a universal religion, when in fact it's a particularistic religion. But we're particularly a particularistic religion, okay? But we say we're a particularistic religion that's what we are that's who you know and and therefore not everybody has to be jewish let me ask you something. okay so be, uh, be whatever uh, you're going to be you know, my question i was trying to ask you before which i don't know if you've answered fully or not maybe i could have figured it out do you now and your family uh considering the fact that you you know you've been rained upon so often do you harbor very very grave suspicions to every israeli arab unless you know no. them how no, about your family? No, I do not. How about your family? Are they are they con- ah. contemptuous of the Israeli Arabs and says, "No, we have to, these guys might be having a knife and are going to stab me when I'm not looking." Is that? No. They, uh, I don't. I don't believe so. I mean, I, my my kids probably lean more right than I do, which is, I think, typical for uh, for um, generations here. But uh, no, I don't. I. I don't think so at all. I mean, yeah. <laughs> to the extent that I, to the extent that I know these people, you know, they're mostly on the level. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know of any of them that are bad. I don't know that many anyway to begin with. But, but uh, we have Arab doctors in hospitals here, and we have Arab pharmacists. By the way, pharmacy, pharmacy, being a pharmacist is a very, is a very um, a desirable job description for a lot of uh, Arabs because it's a it's a key to getting a, a good job and it doesn't require that much um, you know as much as much medical school as as let's say being a being a doctor so uh, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of movement of of Arabs both I mean there's also Bedouins and there's also you know say Arabs or Palestinians or whatever you want to call them um, and there's a pretty big cultural divide between those those two groups. You know, uh, Bedouin are are Bedouin. They're they're like let's say they they've been um, more or less settled down over the over the past couple of years. But they they come from a tradition that's you know tribal much more so, and and still kind of like wild and unfettered. And then you have and then you have these other people who have been farmers for for eight hundred years. Okay, so they're much more, they're much more tied to the ground and sedentary, and and um, it's a different, so it's a completely different culture, 
you know. Um, so there's not that much glue that connects, let's say, a, a, a Palestinian Arab to a to a Bedouin Arab. But anyway, to the extent that I know any of these people at all, what they really want is they just they want to live, they want to have a life, they want to get ahead. Um, most of them realize the basically the irony, okay, that if not for Medinat Israel, okay, where would the whole lot of them be? Okay, you know, there was going to be no pal if if Jordan had taken over this part and Egypt had taken over that part and Lebanon had taken over this part and Syria had taken over the rest, there wouldn't be any Palestinian country. There wouldn't be any Palestinian people. They would all be subservient to the same kind of governments that, um, that exist today. And although the original, who knows knows what their situation would be. The original UN idea though, did give, did have like a Palestinian or an Arab state, Side by side, right? That was the original nineteen. Yeah, but, but none of the none of the Arab nations, um, you know, respected that. Mm, you know, right. when the Egyptians took over Gaza in nineteen in nineteen forty eight, there wasn't any talk about uh, you know letting you know creating some sort of Palestine. The only reason why Egypt Egypt and Jordan and and Syria and Lebanon um, fostered the idea of Palestinian of Palestinian people is not so that they should be given land that belongs to Arab nations. It's so that they should kick out the Jews and take over the land that was belong that belonged. No, no, to no, no. That is, I think, Israel. That, yeah, I, okay, I agree so, with you as far as that goes. But no. and uh, ironically, ironically, I think that anybody with half, you know, with half a brain would have to would have to concede that that uh, um, it's a good thing that it happened the way that it did. Not just not just for them, but not not just for us, of course, but for but for them also to some extent. Um, what, you're, they have... what you're saying is that if, in, again, if of course there was loss of life and a war is always terrible, but had the Palestinians or whatever they were called in 1947 accepted um, the, what, what the UN's original idea was, which was to give most of the coastal area to the Jews who had built up the cities there, and then uh, the the what, what, the the eastern part, the, towards the mountains over there, uh, would have been more the Arabs. You think it would have been a country that would have clearly devolved into corruption, like many of the like as Gaza. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. You got me. You, you got me wrong. I, that 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 situation could have been actually very good for everybody, conceivably. Okay, you know, it's had had the had the original UN thing been been accepted. We would be the big losers, probably in the sense that we would have no direct access to Yerushalayim, okay? And our access to Yerushalayim would be would be contingent upon the goodwill of the of the uh, Arab state of Palestine, let's say. So, but you know, if you if you look at it as the possibility for actually having a full fledged uh, experiment in in uh, what are they called Dukium here? Um, or what are they? Dukium is um, coexistence, you know, peaceful coexistence. That you know that that might have worked out quite quite splendidly once again, um, you know. But that was not what was supposed to happen. The when you know when the Arab countries invaded in nineteen in nineteen forty eight, um, their purpose was to wipe Israel off the map and to take over the land that was supposed to be um, given both to Israel and to Palestine. So Jordan did that. Jordan came in. They 
took over, you know, let's say East Jerusalem and, and, and all of the, you know, Shamron and Yehuda and um, all that, all that area. And they didn't have any intentions of giving it back to anybody. You know, that was, they, they put that, they annexed that to Jordan and nobody's, you know, and nobody said a word. Why would they? You know, and as long as, as long as this is Arabs ruling Arabs, so who, you know, who really cares? Okay. The only, the only time you start to care is if it's Jews and Arabs, but, you know, had Chas V'Shalom had the war of 1948 been lost. Okay. So then, you know, I think that the, the Arabs living in, in, in Eretz Yisrael would have been under very oppressive regimes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, you know? in terms of, so you're right. And, and I think many people have pointed out that when Dershowitz very famously and others that the Jews live, that the Israeli Arabs, um, uh, level of employment, their, uh, the amount of money that they make, uh, the services that they get are unmatched anywhere else in the Arab world. They, the Israeli Arabs, although he said, you know, he, he made an interesting point comparing them recently uh, to the Haredim, that they are definitely second-class citizens. They are, um, there's a uh, attitude against them, a prejudice that is uh, clearly envisaged by, by, by citizens towards them. But their quality of life in many ways is, is very strong. And uh, that's something which I think, uh, of course, the, the Western press uh, ignores um, and really, uh, you know, they, they treat this whole conflict uh, in very simplistic terms, using a lot of the emotional imagery um, that Hamas loves uh, flooding the media world with, which is the imagery of all the dead children and the mothers crying. And this was something that yeah. I think that the, you know, I guess this is, gets me into, I guess, our, one of the last things I wanted to talk to you about Um you know, you said you listen to the news to find out what's going on. Uh, do you find you and your family are are frustrated with the success of the Hasbara? That um, you know, I, I know that you keep an ear to the ground as to what's happening in the United States. Not only you have a relationship with me, but of course you have a relationship with many of your, your family in, in America. So you're hearing, of course, uh, what the Western press here is saying. You're hearing about the various calls of um, of demonizing uh, uh, Eretz Israel, Israel and their response. Um, how is that affecting you out there? It used to affect me much more badly than it uh, than it does. It used to it used to make me angry and, and frustrated. Yeah, um, but um, I think that uh, I suppose I owe this to to Donald Trump that uh, you know he wasn't. He was much less concerned with the media. The media is a bunch of hypocritical jokers anyway. And I think that most people actually have come to the point where they can see through that. And so why take them seriously? Really, everybody but, knows but, what they're going to say before just, they say it. Right. It's, but, but the media's effect here, the, the, their footprint is, is, is large. And I mentioned to you before. I don't know. You know, I'm. I kind of, by the way, I kind of wonder about that. I think their, I think their footprint is is shrinking, and they're becoming less and less credible. Um, and so, you know, part of the battle between, let's say, Fox News and and CNN. Um, but um, you know, I, really, I'm no longer, I'm no longer concerned about them. And 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 frankly, you know, the AP has been a thorn in our side for a long time. So. You know, 
it's nice for it's nice for them to be told to leave their their headquarters and relocate. Yeah, well, I'm quite okay with that. Tell me, did the um, you, you know, I know you, we we've talked a little bit about your family here. Do you do you have children that are still? Let's say there is um, a resumption of hostilities, and there is a call to go in as foot soldiers into Gaza. Are any of your children um, going? Do you think going to be called in? No, no. And that's no. that's why was that? They're already that? past the age. Didn't you know it? It didn't work out that way. Okay. Um, well, let's see. My, I mean, my oldest, my oldest son was legitimately was legitimately given a a uh, a patura, an exemption because of his uh, medical issues. Okay. My second son, he went to college, paid for by by the army, and he paid off his debt by uh, by working in the air force. So he was so he was an enlisted person in the air force for a couple of years, and he was let go and. You know that's fine. End of you know that's the end of that was the end of that period of his life. Um, my other, my third son, the one that's in China today, um, he actually did the the, the Nahal Haredi. He did the the um, you know because he was probably the most Haredi of my of my kids. And when he left yeshiva, you know it was just kind of natural for him to go in that direction. And so he did his uh, his three years of service, his four years of service, um, and. Um, yeah, he had you know he had a he had a run in with a certain unpleasant situation, so he ended up actually, although he did a very good job, but but he was not considered for for uh, you know continuing. And today you know today he lives in China. Um, my daughter did not serve; right? she didn't want to, and she took the religious exemption. Uh, and my youngest son, um, he tried to serve, but it. <laughs> You know, he 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 ended up he ended up actually in a in um well he he ended up he ended up with a with a diagnosis as having a unique disorder known as unable to listen to commands from people who don't care about him disorder. And really, I'm serious. That's you know that my my son had a lot of heartburn, mostly because you know the. When he when he joined the army, certain promises or assurances were made to him in terms of what kind of jobs he was going to be getting, and he ended up with jobs that he was, you know, and he felt very betrayed by them, and and there was all sorts of other, so, you know. So I understand the, ar- I, the I, army. I, the army, by the way, can be very, you know, you look at it from my point of view. Okay, if you're if you're if you're a commander in the army. So your first duty is to take care of your soldiers and to make sure that they're okay and to make sure that they that they feel valued because they're all valuable. There's a lot of value that goes gets pumped into these young guys, you know. But the the Israeli army also has has an equal tendency to simply look at uh, you know look at soldiers as if I mean I wouldn't say chasvishalom expendable, but you know if you're if I guess if you're not in the right kind of units, if you're not a you know if, if you're not a Tank and you know tank driver or something like that. So then, yeah, just you know, just another. So well, send them to the send them send them to the kitchen. You know, send them out to you know clean the grease out of the inside of the turrets of the of the tanks. You know, whatever it doesn't matter. And um, you know, I have my son, son just wasn't you know, able you know to put son, up with that. You know, my son served in the army too, so you know that I understand that. And I I'm asking you just because I think that uh, for a resident of Eretz Yisrael. 
the prospect of sending their children or sending another person's children, I think is really horrendous. I think the, there's a, um, you know, the, the idea of, of our ground war um, is something that I think sends shudders throughout the community. You know, um, uh, you'd agree about that, right? I think so. I think the, um, the necessity, if it becomes necessary, I think is understood. But uh, we all know that when you're going house to house, uh, the type of um, danger that's really involved. And I think that the communal stress I remember from seven years ago was very intense when, mm-hmm. people, when people knew that their children were actually clearing out uh, terrorist nests and things like that. Um, I, I think that that is, is a uh, will, would, it, would, would it definitely extract a psychological toll, even for people who have a, uh, a very strong-willed attitude in general towards yeah. uh, success. Well, we had, we had our share of, of sleepless nights. Once again, over, over, the, over the one, you know, the, the middle child, the one that's in, in China now. Okay, you know, he, he got himself into some kind of trouble. Now, I don't, don't want to say what kind of trouble it was. It was not an ethical or moral or some sort of failing of that. He, you know, wasn't, it wasn't drug-related or anything. It was, it was just something, you know, it was just something that happened. Okay, he forgot something and he shouldn't have forgotten it. And, and, um, and after that, he could no longer uh, serve as a, as a lochem, as a, as a fighter. Okay, and that was his, you know, punishment. And then after, at the end of his service, after he'd worked for them for another two and a half years or so, then, uh, you know, then they then they stuck him in in jail for thirty days, and then they let him go. That was that was the way that it worked. They didn't they didn't put him in jail pre- previous to that because he was doing too good of a job with them. But after he, you know, after he lost the right to uh, to be a fighter, so then he was put in, I don't know, logistics. Okay, so he was logistical officer for a uh, for a large uh, military facility. Did very well. We, you know, and we and we and we slept at night. So we had a, we actually we had a running joke, you know, because he was, you know, we were so we were so upset about his punishment. We were so upset they punished you. They deprived you of your ability to be a lochem kavi. Oh, oh. How are we gonna live with ourselves? <laughs> you know. You're right. You know, I have to tell you that I <laughs> we, we, just, we suddenly started sleeping much better at night. I have to okay. tell you that I shared. Um, I can share that a little bit with you. You know, with my son Achemi. You know, you we when we met. I think it was the last time was face to face. Was was yeah. actually actually was Chaim's wedding. But you remember my son Achemi at the time um, was in the army, and his profile was quite high, ninety seven or ninety eight or something like that. And I worked very hard along with other people behind the scenes um, to not necessarily get him out of service, but basically, you know, the, the unit he was part of did not uh, respect his religious proclivities, uh, really, in a way, took advantage of him. Uh, he would find that he would go out to David Marv and uh, he'd come back and his... His uh, his food was gone. Uh, he would ask mm. questions about Erevin and other things like that, where you know questions in the Bika and the Carmelis and other things where you know, there were issues, and, and he was ignored. Um, and he also was going through a tremendous amount of you know boredom and and maybe I don't know if he was afraid of the danger, but you know doing uh, 
guarding on the Lebanese border. Uh, there was just in general an attitude that that he was not part of the mix, and uh, he, yeah. the camaraderie that was waved in his face was not there. The part that the the Israeli government felt, oh, everybody that comes, he's going to be a chayil bodei, he's going to be so part of his unit. Most of the people in his unit couldn't understand why the heck he decided to leave America and come there. They couldn't believe it, and they they considered him such an oddball because of that, despite the fact that he was a you know well-meaning and a very pleasant person. So anyway, what happened, true. what happened was is that I was able to work behind the scenes among some other people, and we were able to get him, uh, and we spoke to the, his aloof, and we were able to get his profile altered, and he started, he was then designated to work uh, with the Mashkichim as a Mashkich Kashrus, right. a Makash, I think they called it, or something like that. Or Magash, I forget what, exactly what the Rishon Tevis are. Yeah, Makash. Makash, I said it right. And, yeah, you said and, and he was able to spend the last couple of months of his service uh, away from you know the, the, the risks. And again, like yourself, I was very happy. And the truth was, it was actually a learning experience for him. <laughs> Because he he was trained in many of the um, fundamentals of kashrus and ashkocha, which uh, I, I was very happy about, and I think has has helped him uh, in his married life. So you know, as much as I was I was very proud, I was very proud that when he got his kumta, I was very proud about the fact that he was going to serve, and I knew that there would be that fear. The fear rose within us that he might be called uh, in a ground war. Um, but like yourself, I was very relieved. Uh, and I, 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 I don't know how me, uh, my wife and I would have been able here in the United States even uh, to go get through every night knowing that our son was out there. And I can imagine mm. the type of terror uh, that could grip families there. Well, Nelson, you've been very, very open yeah. about... Uh, yourself, your family, and your personal experience. So- Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.